Amen. I'm turning this morning to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll continue looking through this epistle uh, in a verse by verse fashion. And this morning we're going to begin tackling uh, one of the more difficult, I say that relatively, uh, one of the difficult chapters. Uh, Hebrews 6 certainly qualifies as being one that contains uh, many uh, questions and expressions that have been debated uh, throughout many years as to the intent and the meaning of the writer, how it fits into the whole account of biblical theology. Uh, but I believe, just like every other book of the Bible, uh, that the answer is contained within the Scripture, uh, that there is an answer to exactly what this chapter is about. This morning, uh, we are not going to intend, without any intention of getting through many verses at all, but I do want to draw your attention just the first three verses by way of an introduction today. And again, I'm going to give you a lot of beginning uh, background on what Hebrews 6 is about, uh, but also what Hebrews 6 is not about. Uh, remember, anything that we read, there is an intent of the writer, what the context is, uh, what the context isn't. Uh, there's also what the interpretation is, what the interpretation is not. Uh, even going as far as saying what the application is and what the application is not, I think you see the pattern. Uh, continually going along these lines, that's primarily what we'll be looking at this morning to introduce this chapter. Uh, beginning there in verse 1, it says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. Now, we have to remember, and again, I want to just point out to you that there's an expression there in verse 1, uh, again, depending on which translation you're looking at, uh, says the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ this chapter does not begin or commence a new section. Um, this is not something that we are to cut off what we read and what we studied in chapter 5, but rather this is a continuation of what we've already been learning. Now, it was noted last week that I did something completely out of character for me, and I went through an entire chapter, Hebrews 5, in one sermon. And it went through it in one setting, which I don't ever do. And part of the reason is, is because chapter 6 really interprets what chapter 5 was about. They are together. The, the best way to interpret Scripture is to compare Scripture with Scripture. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing in chapter 6 is really giving us an interpretation and setting the context of what chapter 5 was all about. Now again, we, we also brought up a lot of different things that were new to some of us. We're uncertain about what this means. And one of those things is about that phrase, the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? What does Melchizedek have to do with anything in our modern day uh, church and our uh, understanding of theology? Uh, but again, everything that we're doing today is you know, means of showing us what chapter 5 was all about. So the first thing we need to remember as we introduce this chapter is to remember that what the writer of Hebrews 6 is doing is he is doing what we call a digression. 
He is, he's returning back to what he had spoken about previously. Primarily, he's dealing with, in chapter 6, about the final verses of chapter 5, when the writer said this in verse 11 of chapter 5, "...of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing." For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil." I made mention that those final verses of chapter 5 were were with the context of what the writer brought up about Melchizedek. That he was really indicating to them that the dullness of hearing and the many things that they did not know were even the teachings of how Melchizedek, what Melchizedek pictured, what Melchizedek typified, what Melchizedek was really stating, especially with regard to Judaism. Now, in our study this morning at 10 o'clock, I made mention to those that were here that the key to understanding Hebrews 6 is you cannot lose sight of the influence and the power of Judaism to the Hebrew believer and to the Hebrew unbeliever. Hebrews 6, if you take Judaism out of this, if you take salvation by the works of the law, if you take salvation by baptisms, if you take, sal- if you take it all away and say, Chapter 6 of Hebrews is just how to be a better Christian. You're going to miss it. Uh, There's a problem that we have, uh, not just in America, but in our world with regard to Bible interpretation. But I use this term and it's not patented. It's just, it's, it's, we've Americanized theology. We have a, a theology that is viewed through the lens of the American church. And we think that everything that was written was written so that the American church could get a hold of it, grab it, could say, now how does this apply to me so that I can go on about my way and have my devotion for the week? The problem with true exposition of Scripture is that's not the way Scripture works. We have to get away from this idea that American church is the only way that church is done. And that we cannot read the United States, into everything we read. We cannot read and say, oh, I know what God had in mind. This this is America to a T right here. There may be characteristics of it. Or this is the church today. There may be characteristics of it. But remember what the writer of Hebrews would have been dealing with. Judaism and the idea of being saved by works and saved by all the types and shadows and figures They still held it to be very dear, and they still consider it to be something that has to be a part of our justification. What the writer of Hebrews 5 was saying is that you should understand in a more deep fashion even what who Melchizedek was, what he typified, what he was really about, and how that applies to the true hope which is found in Jesus Christ. So we have to keep these things in mind. So in the view of the dullness, again, whatever translation you have, it may not use that word, but he says you are dull of hearing. Now, this is not a, it's not a, a, a commendation. He says you're, you're, you're dull in your hearing or you're dull. He's, he's trying to edify them 
But he's going to give them reasons in chapter 6 regarding their dullness of hearing and addressing the issues of when you should have been a teacher, you still need to be taught. When you should have been eating meat, you're still taking milk. Now again, he didn't mean actual meat, he didn't mean actual milk. He wasn't talking about, you know, you, you go to your feast and you can't eat meat because your stomach can't handle it. You can't, you, that's, not, that's not what he meant. He, he meant you can't handle the meat of God's Word. You can't handle it. You're unskillful. And it says it all goes back to this idea that you're dull and you're hearing. You're dull and you are not where you're supposed to be. Now again, I want you to keep in mind American Christianity when you go through this. Because I will tell you that for many, many years, the only way I ever was taught what Hebrews 5 meant was about how to be a better Christian. How to be an immature Christian, how to be a mature Christian. The writer does not have in mind immature Christian and mature Christian. He has in mind those that are still caught in Judaism who should have been moving over to Christ, the true center of Christianity. The problem is not immature Christianity and mature Christianity. The problem is the Judaism is still infiltrating you to where Judaism is now overriding what you should find your hope in, which is in Christ alone. Now, that just sets a whole new foundation that if you didn't, have not been taught that before, you're, you're, you're now getting ready to go on a whole new journey. Because the writer was keeping in mind true context. That's why context matters. That's why we've got to be careful that we don't just read the Bible into what we think the writer meant. There actually was an intent. There was an intention that the God of this world gave to the writer of Hebrews to express what was really going on. Now, just in those first three verses that I read, I'm just going to point out a couple of words because you can kind of see what the intent of the writer is. First of all, there is an intention that the writer gives that we'll call this a positive intention. Okay, now here's what a positive intention is. Look what it says in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. That's a positive intention. So that tells us that the writer of Hebrews 6, the same writer of Hebrews 5, has a positive intention as to what he's getting ready to say. Does everybody see that? This, what I'm going to tell you is positive. However, with every positive, there's also something that has to be negative. So secondly, notice what he says. In order to go on to perfection, okay, right before that, now the, our order is different, he uses the word leaving. Everybody see that? Again, your translation may be different. Therefore, leaving. So now you have this principle. I have a positive intention for you to go on to perfection. But in order for you to go on to perfection, you have to leave something. Everybody on the same page so far? It's, it's a positive and a negative, right? It's kind of like the person who has a positive attitude when they get up in the morning and they say, I'm going to do this today. But the problem is their positivity hits a wall because they never leave the thing that was negative. Okay, it's a crude illustration, but that's the idea. You've got to move away from something in order to get on to perfection. This is not about being an immature Christian or a mature Christian. This is about leaving Judaism and going on to perfection, which perfection is founded in Jesus Christ, not Judaism. Again, we don't understand Judaism because we're not, we are not influenced by it or we don't think we are. 
We don't think that the problem that the Hebrew writer was dealing with, with the separation and division between the Jew and the Gentile, because it was more marked and distinct. You didn't come in today pretty much worried about which side of the Judaism the Judaizers are on and which side the Gentiles are on. In other words, this is the Gentile side and you guys are all the Judaizers, right? I think, you're like, I think, I, I think he just insulted me. Just illustration, Judaizers, and you're the Gentiles. Now, in a typical church and a, a meeting, that's kind of what it would have looked like. Your Gentiles would have been on one side, your Judaizers would have been on the other. They would have thought they were right. The people on this side would have thought they were right. And then you would have had people who were kind of in the middle. They were converted Jews who understood and learned what Judaism was, was meant to be something to point us on to something else. So to say that Judaism and the works and the law had no purpose in God's plan, that would be an incorrect statement. It actually had a purpose. The problem is some Jews never moved away from the understanding of why God gave that in the first place. He never gave it as an intention to stay there forever. He gave it as an intention to leave that and go to that which was to be perfected. So hopefully that's pretty clear. Now what's really going to throw a wrench into all this, and again, this is one of the things you run into when you have multiple translations, and I'm not making a statement on what translation you have. Just go with me. But what I am saying is, is some of your translations may not put it the same way. The writer uses the expression that's almost out of place. Because he uses the term leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Wait a minute, if you want me to go on to perfection, why would I leave the doctrines of Christ? That's why we have to understand where he's going. What he means by the doctrine of Christ, he's talking about the elementary things, the beginning things. The things that, as he mentioned, when you had the first principles, if you go back to, to Hebrews 5, verse 12, when he says, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Now, when the Israelites, the Jews, were given the oracles of God in the Old Testament, they did not have the full revelation of Jesus Christ and who he would be, what he would look like, what he would do. They just had a promise of his coming. But they were given the first oracles. That's where the system of Judaism, the system of sacrifices, the system of the priest, that idea of Melchizedek, the idea of the high priest, the atonement of sin, the sacrifice, the shedding of blood, they were given who God was, all of these oracles. So there's the intent positively to go on. Secondly, there's an intention to leave. We're going to talk more about that. Thirdly, in verses 4 through 8, which we're not going to read today, he suddenly gives a warning about apostasy. That's the controversial section. That's where we're really going to get into, all right, what have you been taught about this? What have you been taught about this verses 4 through 8 about can this be a falling away? Can a person fall from grace? Who is the person who was once enlightened and who was the person who tasted of the heavenly gift, who were made partakers? Were these real believers or were these people who just had a taste of it? That's been debated by many, many uh, sound theologians and pastors throughout decades. Okay, We're going to have to deal with that when we get to it. That's the part about exposition. I can't just run away from it. I can't just say we're going to do 1 through 3 and then we're going to go to verse 9. Right? I'm going to have to deal with it. We're not going to deal with it today. We're not going to get there. I can promise you that. So, 4th, verses 9 through 14... 
right after he warns him about apostasy, he then turns and speaks directly to converted Hebrews, specifically, in verses 9 through 14. And he softens the case by giving them an example, an encouragement of their faith, by giving an example of a Jewish hero, Abraham. And that's in verses 15 through 21. Now here's where we start putting things together. Abraham, because these Jews, their father Abraham, many of those Jews believed that their salvation was found in just being of the generation of Abraham, that they were the actual Jewish seed. They believed that's that's really what got them access to God. Folks, they truly believed it. This was not just something that they said, yeah, we kind of think that if Abraham was our father from a race standpoint, they really believed it. Now, Abraham in Scripture, we know in Romans, Paul deals with this where Paul talks about being grafted in. He talks about even Gentiles, those who were not Jews by flesh, being grafted into that same tree, if I can use that expression. That's the easiest way to make sense in my mind, right? So that means that Abraham is not just the father of the Jews. Abraham was an intent to be the father of all believers, So do you and I as non-Jews have a connection with Abraham? Absolutely you do. You don't have a quote-unquote genetic connection with him most likely, but you do have a connection with him spiritually. Okay, so that's why Judaism cannot be moved out of this to where we say that's, that's where it goes away. Now, let me give you another scenario that's out there. And I think I mentioned this. There's a scenario, and there are churches, there are Baptist churches you could go to who will say this to you. Hebrews has nothing to do with you unless you're Jewish. Nothing to do with you. That this is all about the Jew. This is all about Judaism and Jew. It has nothing to do with Gentiles. But there are phrases and expressions that completely discount that and say that's not the case. Now, are we dealing with a, a contextually? Are we dealing with a lot of Jews and a lot of unconverted Jews and some converted Jews? Absolutely. Are we dealing with some who were battling, going back and forth between, hey, maybe we're supposed to be keeping the law, maybe we're supposed to be performing these works, but they still believed in Christ? There certainly were. It's much like, um, and the greatest connection I can make this is this is a personal connection. Um, We did some missionary work with Native Americans. And the missionary work that you do with Native Americans is unlike anything else you ever get involved in. Because when Native American work, and we're not by no means an expert, but enough to kind of understand what's happening. Depending on that tribe, depending on their view of God and theology, because every Native American has a different view of who God is. God is in the trees, not just in the trees. God is the tree. God is the lake. God is the grass. God is the sun. They, They truly believe that. And by the way, everything you see as far as garb, The feathers and the colors are representative of a particular God or something that they worship. Now, that is ingrained in their history from the time they are born, that you are this from this tribe. Those feathers, those colors are very special to them. It is is something they've grown up with. When a Native American gets converted... There is not just this automatic shutoff valve where suddenly all those things they used to hold dear to them where they say, well, I guess I could give all that up. Now, I know in our finite little minds, 
And sadly, from some of the pulpits in this country, we have made it this, you get saved, you get converted, you put off everything there was. Matter of fact, bring it to the altar, come pray, drop it off, and leave it. I have never truly met a believer who has completely left everything without there being some time between that conversion and a little bit of growth. Now, we look at the Native American, we don't expect them to do it, but yet... We look at the Jew in the Bible when we expect the Jew to just simply leave all that they knew for hundreds and hundreds of years, and we say, what's wrong with that Jewish person? How can you be a believer in Christ and still be believing that you can keep the law? And we stand with our holier-than-thou nose, and we look down the tip of our nose, and we say, what's the problem here? Now remember, the Gentiles don't have quite a great past themselves. They worshiped a lot of false gods. When Paul would go into those towns and he would say, I perceive you're too superstitious. You have an altar built to the unknown God. So before we, in our Gentileness, can I use that word? Look at the Jew and say, what's wrong with you? Keep in mind that the idea here is that there is this convergence between these two ideas. So there is this, there is this positive intention. Now, how do we generally interpret? So that's kind of an introduction. How do we generally interpret chapter 6? So as we've talked about so many times since we started Hebrews, the theme of Hebrews, the ultimate theme was what? The superiority of Christianity, or specifically, the superiority of Christ over Judaism. Christ is superior over all. That has to be the theme. Hebrews was not about just giving you facts about Judaism, but showing you how Christ is superior. Remember Melchizedek? He keeps coming up. Melchizedek was not Christ, but he had characteristics that pointed to very similar to what Christ would be. Had no beginning, had no end. He had an unchangeable priesthood. He didn't come from the line of Aaron. It was different. Okay, that's the idea. So one of the great troubles, again, as I mentioned to you, in our American Christianity is we inject our form of Christianity into every Bible passage, and how does it apply to our church life? How do I motivate you through the book of Hebrews to be a better Christian? That's what I knew. That that's, there was a time I would have stood up in a pulpit, and today this message would have been about how to be a better Christian, and I would have taken you to Hebrews 5, and I would have pounded you on why you're dull of hearing. Folks, I'm talking, I would have unloaded on you. I might have even done the unthinkable. And I might have pounded the pulpit once or twice. Because what I wanted you to do is I wanted you to get what I wanted you to get out of the text. I wanted you to be a better Christian. But what I should have done is taught what the real is, is the difference between, this isn't about immature Christian and being a mature Christian, it's about leaving Judaism, the superior Christ. Most of what I was doing by pounding out of you your dullness was returning you to Judaism. By your works, I was gaining you acceptance with God. And to seal your decision, we'll play 20 verses of just as I am until you get it right. Y'all see what I'm saying? That's the point. I'm reading it into what I think I want to use the text to jump off with. The writer had no intention. He's talking about the reality of leaving this Judaism. 
So unless the interpreter keeps in mind, steadily in mind, from chapter to chapter, from book to book, from verse to verse, from passage to passage, if we don't remember the theme of Christ being superior over Judaism, we are going to create massive errors. And I'm not talking like little errors. I'm talking massive errors that will, and I'm not trying to be emotional. They will derail your soul if you err in what he's talking about. Your soul would not have been derailed in an immature Christian and a Christian rally preaching sermon. But if you get Judaism and Christianity wrong, or you get that the Judaism, the Judaizer was superior over Christ, you're going to derail your own soul. That's how serious this is. This is not just, well, that's just your opinion. If you read it for the text that it is, you'll find out that it's that concept. Christ is superior to Judaism. Christ is superior to the works of the law. That's the key which unlocks every chapter. That's the key which actually unlocked chapter 5 last week. I just didn't say it. But it's what unlocks it. So, you keep opening up every portion. Every portion is open with the key of understanding that Christ is superior. If I don't put that theme in the rest of the series on Hebrews, every verse you come to, you're going to have to strain and force it into a box that it doesn't fit into. You're going to have to say, well, here's what that, and I'm going to squeeze that in. and I'm going to make it fit. I've broken a lot of tools over the years doing that, by the way. I knew it did fit, knew it wasn't the right one. I'm like, I don't want to bother and go get down. I'm just going to keep pushing it. Guess what happens? It never fits. It just ends up breaking. So if we try to push this mold and avoid Judaism, we're going to miss what the writer's talking about. So the importance of this interpretation, folks, I cannot overstate it. Okay, Because even what we've looked at in the previous five verses show us that unless we're keeping in mind that the purpose of Hebrews was to show the superiority of Christ, I'm going to miss it. So the theme of Hebrews is not a contrast between two stages of Christianity, immature and mature. Does that make sense? That's not the main theme. Now, if you approach it that way, you're going you're to force it. But rather, the writer is contrasting two opposing ideas. Opposing ideas, one is based on substance and one is based on shadows. One is based on types and one is based on anti-types. They are two opposing things. So that we are not left with the reality of the idea that these two forms, systems, can, align, can be together and form a doctrine. But they are related. Because if we don't have the shadow, we won't understand the substance. Does that make sense? The shadows were the Old Testament things, the pictures, the types. The substance is what we actually see. We saw Christ. We see the perfection. We saw and we see now what the Old Testament saint and the Old Testament high priest did not see. So we understand that it's substance versus shadows. So the writer continues to press upon the Hebrews their need of getting rid of what you can see 
for the invisible, which is what? That's faith. Folks, we may not call it Judaism, but we are still, even our theology, we're very, very visible. (laughs) We are overly concerned with what we see in people or what we don't see in people. And we make a judgment call as to whether or not that person truly is in the faith or not based upon what we see. It's our own version of stereotyping. Christian stereotyping runs rampant. We make a call on a person based on how they're dressed, what they say, and there are, there are to be differences. Don't make any mistake about that. But how many people we've been dead wrong about just because we could only see the visible? I venture to say it's scary how many times we've missed it. Okay, now remember, the Pharisees were all about what? Visible. They were all about what people could see. What they could hear. I tithe. I fast this many times a week. I am so glad I'm not like that guy over there. That's a form of Judaism. The Pharisee was a type of a Judaizer. So that's how we interpret this. Contextually, it is different than interpretation. So if we take up this present text, chapter 6, it's first important to understand how, what's, the, what's the connecting, how do we connect the context? Again, if we, as we come to these words every time, you'll probably, it's, it's become cliched with me. The be, giant theological word that begins chapter 6 is the word what? Therefore. It's not a standalone. If I write you a letter today, I don't begin with therefore, usually. Because unless I do something to tell you what the therefore is about, you have no idea what I'm referencing. The therefore is what ties the context between chapter 5 and chapter 6, not just 5 and 6, but connects the entire book together and says, here's what this is there for. I know that's cliched, but that's what it really means. Therefore presents the context. So the writer of Hebrews is drawing a conclusion from something that he said previously. So what has he said previously? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. The first rule of interpretation is immediate context. What's the most immediate first thing contextually? Then we see that, and then you expand out. So you get the immediate context is the verse, then you move into the chapter, then you might move into the book, then you're going to get down even into people. You're going to get down to who is the audience? Believe it or not, the audience of each particular letter actually makes a big difference too. If I was going to write to you, I would write to you as a different audience than I would another person because knowing who you are, right? The Bible is the same way. There are applications and things that we may look at and say, wait, isn't he talking to the Jew here? Absolutely he's talking to the Jew. Or isn't he talking to the Gentile? Absolutely he's talking to the Gentile. Does that mean it doesn't apply to me? No, but I have to understand the context. So what is this therefore? It takes us back to interpret. Again, chapter, verse 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 6 directly immediately connect us to the end of chapter 5. That's the first immediate context. So that gives us the sound starting place of expounding this text. So what is the, what is the writer doing? He is rebuking the Hebrews for spiritual sloth, dullness, unskillfulness. 
He compares that to being like a child who can do nothing but take milk. He tells them again that they have need of somebody teaching them again. Teaching them what? The first principles of the oracles of God. That's what they were still, that was the milk. Right? Everybody's still on the same page. That's the milk. Those first oracles. What the writer is saying is you have not fully grasped the reality between what Judaism was, especially in its temporary stance. Judaism was meant to be something that was temporary, although a type or a typical one. The ordinances and the ceremonies were foreshadows of he who was coming. Perfection. Christ. The problem that the writer sees under the inspiration of the Spirit is you're failing to grasp the purposes of what Judaism is and you're failing to go on to perfection, which is Christ. That is like the bottom line. You know, if you're a bottom line person, that's it right there. You're failing to grasp it. Now again, we're not even going to deal with today, was he talking about the unsaved or the saved? But regardless, at this point, they're failing to grasp it. The people he's talking about in, at the end of chapter 5 are people who are failing to grasp the differences here. So Christ came and did what? He came and made a full atonement for the sins of the people. He came and by His finished work, He fulfilled what all of the types, all of the purposes, and all of the shadows. Put it this way. The shadows were replaced by substance. So if you want to try to put this together and say, how does the Old Testament and New Testament, how do they connect? Old Testament is substance, or a shadow rather, and the New Testament is substance. Shadows, substance. That's why when you read the New Testament, if you don't have the Old Testament, if you're a true expounder, you want true, true exposition of Scripture, you have to have the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. So don't tell me you can be a New Testament Christian, which that's a thing too. I told somebody last week, there's actually red letter Christians. Did you know that? They only read red letters, by, they only read red letters in a Bible. They only believe the red letters of Jesus. Everything else you don't have to worry about. There's also people that say the only thing we're concerned about are the letters of Paul. And they'll say this, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, unless you're Jewish, have nothing to do with you. I just got really, really frightened. Okay? All of those approaches are wrong. There are people who are Old Testament, and they call themselves we're Old Testament Christians. They go together. Think about how even a, even a basic story in our life has to have connections. I have to be connected to something to have an understanding of what you're even talking about. We say that all the time. Context matters, right? If I make a statement today and I give you no context as to what it means, you're going to leave here confused. But if we connect it and do it properly, then we'll see how this happens. So the overview then of chapter 6 is spiritual condition. The condition in which some of the Hebrew saints... Okay? Some of the Hebrew saints were being addressed, but then there are also some who were not, quote-unquote, Hebrew saints, who are also going to be addressed. 
Hence, when we get to verses 4 through 8 and 9 through 15, we possibly might be dealing with two different types of people. We'll get there when we get there, right? He's telling them you're going backward. Instead of moving on, remember I said going on and leaving? Instead of going on, not only are they not leaving, they're going backwards. You're, you're, you're so missing how to grasp this that instead of even moving, it's not even that you're stationary. You're actually going backwards. So to the Pharisee, you're getting more Pharisaical. To the Judaizer, you're becoming more and more that. To the person who saved, thinks they're saved by works, you're even more than you were before. You're doing the exact opposite of what the intention of the writer was. To go unto and to leave. That's what's at the heart of this. So the cause, the really the cause of this, what's happening, we don't even really find out until we get to the 10th chapter. The 10th chapter of Hebrews begins to really unfold why all this happened to begin with. It takes them back to a point in time. Again, here's another, here's another indication. And I'm not, I, I don't mean any insult by this. But we do realize that the way your Bible is put together in your hand today, unless you have one of the chronological Bibles, this is not in order by date. So if I read Hebrews 10, it doesn't mean that it came after Hebrews 5 or Hebrews 6. Now I say that because not everybody knows that. People pick up and they say, well, certainly the oldest, this has to, this all has to be chronological. It's not. So there are times when a writer is writing about something that happened previously, and there are times when a writer's talking about something that's going to happen in the future, which is why when we get to the book of Revelation, which is coming, we're going to have to nail that down too. Because you're going to come with a presupposition of what you think Revelation is before you ever get there. And some are going to have an opinion that this has already all happened. Some are going to have the opinion none of this has happened. Some are going to have the opinion that half of this has happened. Half, some are going to have the opinion a third of this is happening. So we have to understand what's happening in these particular things. But in Hebrews 10.32, here's what the writer says. He says, but call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Now, we don't find out until verse 34 that that great fight of afflictions that they had, whatever the afflictions were, it says they took it joyfully. Now, that's kind of just a hint. It's just a kind of a precursor. Whatever those, that fight of afflictions was, they took it joyfully. That was remarkable. It would have been a remarkable thing to deal and take afflictions joyfully. Here's why they took it joyfully, because here's what, again, depending on your translation, here's what verse 34 says. Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance, now get this, which was and is Christ. So whatever the fight of afflictions we're going to learn about was, they took it joyfully. Why did they take it joyfully? Because they knew, they knew they had an enduring substance, which was where? In heaven, which was and is who? Christ. 
It's all about getting them to understand the reality of who Christ is. So how do we apply today? Simply, let's apply it this way. Oftentimes, and I think even in our modern day, again, I'm giving you an application. I'm not sitting here telling you that this is this deep theological, take this to the bank and go tell somebody this theology. It does speak in an applied manner to what could be referred to as the inpatient condition of the soul, which simply means that oftentimes, because we don't have the full revelation of something, okay, we impatiently try to move things along to make it more visible or more likely to occur. When we start to do that, we start to force things into Scripture that doesn't mean what it says because we're not following proper interpretation, even giving credence to the basic context. One of the, one of the first things, and again, I could, I could tell you more about this. I, I don't rely on a seminary education, and a lot of my seminary education, I found it, it's not where I'm standing right now. Okay, I just, it's not. But the most important thing that we learned was about context. Context, context, context. If you miss that, you are going to miss the entirety of it all. And so if, if we don't get that part and we start trying to force something that's not there, we're going to find ourselves saying and making the scripture say something it was never intended to say. So the application here is, is these various things he's going to deal with in chapter 6 when he talks about Abraham, when he talks about what appears to be believing people falling away. Now, if you think that will throw the pot a little bit, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where this is going. And if you don't understand the difference between the Judaizer and what's going on, going on to Christ, it's not going to make any sense. Is he talking about me? And you might falsely leave here thinking that you could fall out of salvation. And I'm here to tell you before we even get there, if you're in Christ today, you will never fall away. But if you're not careful, if you read this scripture and you don't take what I'm talking about this morning in context, when we get there, you might leave here worried. What if I fall away? What if I'm in Christ today, but I do a lot of bad stuff and I fall out? That's why context matters. He has something in mind and he's not talking about the same individuals. He's breaking it up. And we'll get to that. So the application is, is the writer is trying to give them hope even in the midst of warning. I can tell you today that when we get to those sections in Hebrews 6, when we get to verses 4 through 8, I can tell you with certainty that I'm in, I am truly in Christ, saved by His grace. I am not concerned about being one of those that falls from grace. And I'm not worried about one of those ones that is separated from the love of God, because even when we read at 10 o'clock today, my Bible tells me in Romans 8 that no one and no thing can separate me from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't have a concern at all about losing my salvation. I don't have a concern at all about I didn't do enough right things. Because my salvation is not wrapped up in what I'm doing. My call to ministry is not giving me more points with God than it is with any of you. It means nothing in the, in the economy of my salvation. 
right? But if I'm not careful, I could take the Judaistic approach and say, well, maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I am trying to build on that pillar we talked about in theology today, right? I'm trying to build on that theology of me, my works. But the reality is, is no, he's helping us find hope in the midst of something that is so somber. How do we know that? Well, let's just look at the context. Look at, look at verses 11, verse 18, and verse 19 and see if you see the same word. Verse 11, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Remember we talked about intention? The writer of Hebrews 6 has an intention for you to have full assurance of your hope. One of the things, another the thing they tell you in, the, in, in seminary, always give the people something hopeful when they leave. Here's what you don't want. You don't want me motivational speaking you today. But I can give you hope if you're in Christ Jesus today, you can have full assurance of that, that you will always be in Christ Jesus. That's the most hopeful thing I can tell you today. I can tell you today that if you're truly in Christ, if you're truly one of His, you cannot lose your salvation. That's pretty hopeful. I know people who are in Christian circles who go home every day after church scared to death that they're going to fall out of Christ. They're scared to death that they've done something wrong, they didn't do it right. It's nothing more than a form of Judaism. It's nothing more than a form of works-based, I can keep the law, Again, it doesn't mean that Judaism did not have a purpose. But it's understanding contextually what the purpose of Judaism was. The fact, Judaism is what was given as a system of belief, system of theology. The law was given in order for us to see that we could not keep the law. And that they would need someone who would fulfill the law, which is who? Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. That's my hope. Verse 18 you see that word again, that by two immutable things, we just read this, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Again, that came open the 10 o'clock hour today. We're studying the confession and we see this phrase, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. The anchor of my soul is Jesus Christ. Not one of my anchors. The only anchor I have is Christ. And if you're anchored to anything else than Christ Jesus, your anchor is not going to anchor your soul. If your anchor has many prongs on it that has an anchor, one is Christ and one is my works and one is this and one is this, that anchor is not going to anchor your soul. Those five souls at a Reformation that... Even some of our churches today, for some reason, insult. Those five souls are a beautiful thing. Especially that one in Christ alone. In Christ alone, the song says, my hope is found. In Christ alone. We know what the word alone means, right? In Christ alone, single. Not one of many. Not the law and Christ. Christ alone. And then notice he uses it again. We read it in verse 19. And then notice he goes back and go back to verse number 12 and notice the word he uses here. Through faith and patience. 
Remember I told you that our souls can get a little bit impatient? We get a little bit to where we want to rush things. We want to make things fit. We want to make things be what they're not. One of the grand errors that we're making in our churches is, the, is this idea of trying to force an outward visible conformity to something to make people feel secure. If you've never been under that, you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You could never do enough. You could never be enough. And if you didn't be enough and do enough, you weren't enough. Remember, I'm just making an application now, right? You leave saying, I'm never enough. Well, I have news for you. You are never enough. You're not enough. Christ alone is enough. That's what the writer wants the Hebrews to see. Christ is enough. Christ is. And then that last verse we read, and we'll talk about this next week, this will we do if God permit. Hmm. God has something to do with going on to perfection and leaving the first oracles of God. God is the one that permits this. Why did the writer say that? Well, in the true sense of taking contextually throughout Old Testament, when we see phrases like when God permits, oftentimes when you see God permitting something, that means there was something in their conduct. And I'm going to use this term, and I think we understand each other well enough about what this means, that their conduct had provoked him. Now, again, God's not provoked surprisingly, right? So it wasn't like he didn't know it was going to happen. But the Bible does talk about provocation. It talks about tempting me, right? So if God permit, the writer is saying, if God allows this to happen based upon your prior conduct, right? That's what he means. Based on your prior conduct, let us move on to perfection and leave these things if God permit. Again, what are you going to do with the people who say they don't believe in the sovereignty of God? What are they going to do with verse 3? What, what are you going to do with that if God permit? If God permit what? That's, that's the question. So next week, we'll look at how God, through Christ, has wondrously and perfectly, through the Scripture, interprets how we can compare spiritual things with spiritual things. That's really what's at the heart of this. Comparing what's true, what's the shadows, what's the substance, and how much, how much we must go on to perfection that's found in Christ Jesus alone. Let's conclude our thinking this morning by singing the hymn on page 54. And we'll stand as we sing page number 